to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, folks, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, everyone, we're going to be returning to retrieve water from one of my favourite wells here at Paul or Nothing, which is that of Cold Cuts and Hot Hits slash Hot Hits and Cold Cuts. This is one of our many side series on this podcast, and here we go through all of the songs that didn't make their way onto the main canon of McCartney albums for one reason or another. This means we're going to be looking at non-album singles, B-sides, demos, and all manner of unreleased materials. Thankfully, because McCartney has such a wide range of interests, some of which are never expressed in his final product, this series gets to cover the full gamut of genres, styles, and quality control meaning that no two tracks are going to sound alike, and we get to experience some pure McCartney. I was actually worried that I wasn't going to have enough material for this one, because a lot of the hot hits and cold cut stuff does tend to start becoming a little more infrequent, shall we say. He, uh, you know, Paul starts to put more stuff out, or keep stuff a little more well hidden in the 80s. But fortunately, 
rather than having to dip into the McCartney 2 stuff on what is today going to be a very back-to-the-egg-specific episode, my good friend of the show, Andy Nichols from Two Legs, kindly gave me access to a little collection called Mo Max Hidden Tracks, Volumes 1 through 30, which means that there will now be no stone left unturned. And now, not only do I have as many tracks as the last episode, I actually have a shit ton more to say about the majority of them. So this will probably be longer than the last one. I think we'll be good for time. Not too much to say at the top of this one, folks. Y'all know how this works by now. So before we jump right in, let's crack on with the... housekeeping. So what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, something that I hope my friend Dylan Seavey will take full advantage of. Paul McCartney's childhood home is opening to unsigned artists. Yes, folks, you heard that correctly. If you're looking for some inspiration for your songwriting on some hallowed ground, you can literally go to Paul McCartney's literal house, as explained here in this article from The Guardian. Paul McCartney's childhood home in Liverpool is set to be opened for unsigned artists to write music and gain inspiration in. The Beatles legend grew up at 24th Rin Road and was the site on which he and John Lennon wrote such early hits as I Saw Her Standing There. The property is now owned by the National Trust, and McCartney and his brother Mike are launching the Fortherlin Sessions, a scheme which will give young musicians the opportunity to write music in the same spot as the Fab Four. Speaking to Sky News, Mike said, This house to me is a house of hope, and I hope it will be the same for the young people that come through the doors. Of his memories of the house and Paul writing in there, he added, I would be in the other room learning photography, but whilst I was doing all of that, I could hear guitar noises coming from this room. In there were what turned out to be two of the world's greatest songwriters, McCartney and Lennon. They were rehearsing from a school book on the floor, and that's why the house is so unique. Honestly, folks, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this. You know, I know that it's technically Paul and... Mike's house and that the National Trust is an organisation that you can put a lot of trust in but it seems a bit like I don't know exploitative might be the word uh, or heretical (laughs) to open up a space for such endeavours you know and even you know outside of that I'm sceptical as to how many hits were written in such a way in the space songwriting as far as I understand it is very situational and requires true natural random inspiration and the pressure placed on such artists inhabiting the the room and the house might inhibit the creativity that they seek and I, I don't know I also just want to kind of hear a quote from Paul about this as well he hasn't released anything that I've heard of yet uh, I will keep you posted next up we also have an unheard Paul McCartney recording up for auction And no, sorry folks, it isn't any of the unreleased songs that we've hinted before on this show, and it is instead part of a Ringo session. This comes from the NME, and it reads, A previously unheard recording by Paul McCartney of his song Attention, later recorded by Ringo Starr, is going up for auction this month. The demo recording by McCartney was given to saxophonist Howie Casey to reference ahead of the recording session for Starr's 1981 album Stop and Smell the Roses. Casey's wife Sheila would also perform backing vocals on the finished version of Attention alongside Linda McCartney. Casey is now selling the tape, without the song's copyright, at Merseyside's Amiga Auctions with an estimated price of £10,000. Auctioneer Paul Fairweather said, To hear McCartney's unaccompanied working through the bones of this song 
like this is really fascinating and does give an insight into his startling talent for songwriting. So yeah, considering that this is an episode about cold cuts and demos and that kind of thing, it's quite fortuitous that this release and this new story would come out now, but is Paul okay with how he's selling this demo? Is this something that Paul would want to be released to the public like this? I mean, I know all demos and stuff and bootlegging is wrong and Paul would probably be against it, but to have it come from someone in the camp like that, I'm not sure what the protocol is. I wonder if we'll ever hear it either. I wonder if he'll get leaked or released in some way. Again, I will keep you posted. And now that the news is over, let's move on to the emails. To get in contact with the show, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I love reading out any and all correspondence. Whether you want to just say hi, talk about the show, talk about Paul, anything and everything. We've got a couple here today. And our first email, or should I say emails that I've combined for the sake of brevity comes from regular correspondent and Patreon patron Richard Campbell who is mostly writing in response to the Paul is Live episode that me and Paul Sally did last week and it reads and they read as thus Hey, what's more fun than listening to two people shit on an artist and a record for well over three hours? I don't know because now I'm listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast one hour and the 18 minute mark if you're curious Want to know what's hilarious, Sam? Wait for it. I bought Paul is Live back in 94 because I was working in a record store and I got it cheap. I listened to it a couple of times, thought, meh, worse than Trip of the Live Fantastic, which I had kept as a souvenir of that tour. I don't mind a lot of live release of Paul because people, not hardcore fans like you, do like to have a recording of the tour they saw. They're not all for me. I really like Paul's current band, but one record is enough until I hear a radical change in the set list. What was one of the worst things about Paul is Life for me? The songs from what I thought at the time was the execrable Off the Ground album. You should know now that I am also lukewarm on Flowers in the Dirt, the most overrated of all of Paul's records. After Dylan shat on Jet on Tripping, I decided to listen to every fucking Jet on every fucking Paul Live album. Yeah, okay, I'm a bit nuts. And guess what? Dylan is wrong, and so are you. The jet on the vaunted Back in the USA isn't that much better than the one on Tripping or Wings Over America, which suffers from unimaginative drumming. Better guitar sounds, yes, and oh, look at who's on keys. But Paul's voice is just as problematic for very different reasons on it is as on the ones you've decided to choose to nail on the cross. You know how hard it can be. So last night, I went to my handy streaming service and put on Paul is Live and... Prepare to commence the hilarity. Guess what? I like it a lot more than I did in 1994. And I liked the off-the-ground material more than I did in 1994. I may come cap in hand to you shortly. Except for one song that made me think, okay, this is still a knockoff Paul could write in his sleep. Dylan's takedown of Looking for Changes was ridiculous. It's a fun song and the lyrics are fine. And Robbie's Keith Richards channeling solo is brilliant. Now, as I do like to hear opposing views, I will go back to this episode after I played the album a few more times. But I like the band he had. I don't think Paul is in any kind of directional quandary at all. I think he's playing what he wants to play, and I admire him for playing a healthy amount of what was on the record, as I did for the electric arguments and current material he gave me from what I saw of him last. Yes, there are kind of rote moments, nothing special about Michelle or here, there and everywhere, but all my loving is pleasant, 
Drive My Car is just fine, as it always is. Those of you who hate My Love, which is quintessential Paul and who don't get it, can get on with their fierce defences of Blando songs on Press to Play. It is well done here. Even Biker Like an Icon, a ridiculous song that put me off Paul for five years, is exceptionally well done. Damn you, Sam Wiles, my arch foe. I love that you said how easy it will be to review the record as neither of you fancy it. But really, for this avid listener, spending three hours listening to two experts slag off a record expecting me to stay with them when I'd rather hear you both extol the virtues of an album you like is, shall we say, a bit demanding. I know bad reviews can be fun, but brevity is the soul of wit, said no podcaster ever. Only your charming, winning personalities will bring me back to this episode. I'll take it in chunks and hope you will like some things. And know that you got me to reassess off-the-ground material and that fact that I found an album to enjoy as much as you don't. Funny old world, isn't it? But I mean to say, both of you are correct about the absence of off-the-ground. A criminal error. He could have dropped Kansas City and the soundcheck or he could have released the whole set list like Tripping. I went to YouTube to see that there was a live version on there somewhere. Even one shot from the crowd or audio only. No, nothing. God, was it that bad live? I refuse to believe it. Anyway, here comes Biker Like an Icon. I can remember when they played this on Saturday Night Live. I walked out the room. And now I'm tapping my feet and playing air slide guitar. You've ruined me for life, Sam. What's next? I get a custom t-shirt made with lyrics on it? Could happen. Anyway, rock on. Two thumbs up. All the best. Ooh. Richard. P.S. My parents loved Michelle too. P.P.S.S. Dylan can sod off about people not liking songs by saying that, getting their panties in an uproar or whatever. You're just a dude, okay? People not liking a song is no big fucking deal. Guy who doesn't like Jet says, biker like an icon, I never understood the hate. Dude, you've never understood the love. You're just a guy standing in front of a mop top asking him to stop playing Jet. It's never going to happen. Well, Richard, thank you so much for that for that email there. Your emails always make me smile. They always make me laugh. And, I, you know, it, it is heartwarming to see that people are engaging with each episode as they come. You know, it really inflates my ego in the way that only the best email correspondents can. Um... I'm sorry that we don't like the album as as much as you, but I feel like I've been really positive on the podcast for an uncharacteristically long amount of time, and it was only fair that I got to finally let loose and cut loose and give an album you know, a real stripping down, shall we say. You know, I don't think we hated it. We, we, we just said it was really inconsequential and unnecessary which might actually be worse than being a bad album because at least a bad album you can kind of appreciate in its own strange way but this is one that unlike you I am not going to be listening to several times at all (laughs) I do apologize for that but hey Maybe I can get some custom t-shirts made with the lyrics for Biker Like an Icon on them for you to purchase at great expense. Also, I'm glad that I got you to reassess off the ground. It is definitely the Pipes of Peace to Flowers in the Dirt's Tug of War. Though I would say Flowers is probably a little bit better than Tug. Don't quote me on that though. 
Anyway, thank you, dude. Thank you for your Patreon patronage. Hopefully, speak soon. And our final email for the day is from a first-timer, Brian Brigman. It goes, Hello, Sam. First of all, I would like to apologise for the book that I'm about to make you read. Uh, sorry, Brian. Uh, Richard actually sent a much longer email than you, so do not worry at all. I discovered your podcast about four months ago, and I have since listened to every show in the catalogue. I'm 32 years old, so I'm not a Boomer McCartney fan. I had a bout with cancer that had me on my back a while for multiple surgeries, and that's how I was able to listen to all of your shows. So anyways, back to my discovering of McCartney. My dad is more of a McCartney Wings fan than a Beatles fan. We only had the Blue Album in my house, but we grew up on plenty of Wings. So, naturally, I'm more of a Macca fan than a Beatles fan. I love the Beatles, don't get me wrong, but there is just so much McCartney music out there, and he was the best Beatle. Let's not pretend that's even a question. My dad grew up in the late 60s and 70s, so that's why he's such a Wings man. And he has told me that they were as popular as Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd during his high school years. Anyway, I really got into him during the mid-2000s. My best friend at high school was also a big Macca fan. I remember memory almost full coming out, and we both ran to the record store that day, bought it, and we listened to it over and over again. It's why it's one of my favourite albums from him. So, when you do get to it in about two years, don't rip it up too much of an asshole. <laughs> also, I'm not going to lie, Driving Rain isn't as much as a bad album as everyone makes it out to be. I might just be a fanboy, but it's no bad Macca album. Also, I'll be seeing McCartney for the first time this year, hopefully. Never got to see him before because being in the army really messes stuff up like that. For people that complain about his voice or set list, let me know when you can get tickets to see John Lennon or George Harrison. We should be still happy we can see him. Anyways, thank you all for you've done and for the enjoyment you've brought me. P.S. My four-year-old daughter also loves Macca, so he will live on forever. Sincerely, Brian or Brian. Dude, thank you so much for that email. Uh, it's it's mad that someone would have consumed like, some 200 episodes of this podcast in just four months or so. Uh, I'm really glad you've enjoyed them. Of course, my McCartney history goes all the way back to my dad as well. You know, stories of him and my mom listening to Band on the Run together in the car are incredibly formative for me. So thank you for sharing all of that as well. I don't plan to rip on Memory Almost Full and Driving Rain. I don't plan to. It might just end up happening. We'll see. Though, Riding to Jaipur is one of my favourite songs at the moment, so hopefully the rest of the album will be able to live up to that. Um, also, really cool to see that you've got your little girl into Macca as well. It's nice to know that we might have future podcasters in the future. Also, I hope that your cancer is doing well and that you are recovering from that swiftly. You know, all my best goes to you and your family in that regard. Peace and love, peace and love, dude. I hope you enjoy the show ahead. Thank you so much for writing in. And those were the emails, folks. If you want to say anything, if you want to have your say read out on the show, again, or even if you just want to say hi, drop me an email at paulmcardipard at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter for daily updates and all sorts of silliness at McCartneyPod on Twitter. For bonus Paul or Nothing written content, go and check out the blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or the Paul McCartney Podcast. Um, like I mentioned last time, I've had a few weeks off from Mac It In Your Attic, but 
by the time you listen to this episode there will be two episodes of Maka in your attic recorded and there will be the first one at least will be out on the following Monday there are two more in the pipeline so Maka in your attic fans get ready you're going to have some content again uh, folks, if you don't know what Mac It In Your Attic is, it's a side sister show to Paul or Nothing where me and a guest quote-unquote go into their attic, we dust off the cobwebs and we just talk about five really cool items in their Paul McCartney slash Beatle collections. It's just a great way to meet all kinds of fans and have all sorts of conversations about Paul. What more could you want? Now, if you want to help out the show in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's a like, a thumbs up, a nice comment, some stars, whatever it is, all that interaction really helps out the show in a massive way. So if you have any opinions on the show at all and you want to express it through a click, please do so. Though, if you want to help out the show directly in a way that uh, actually financially benefits the show and allows us to keep the show going, keep the lights on, get more product to review, get different guests on, or even allowing to take time off work to work on the podcast even more, then please consider joining our Patreon page. Patreon is, as I'm sure you know by now, the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it's not just a gimme, you do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to all episodes of Macca in your attic. Sometimes weeks in advance, you get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So if I ever record anything on Zoom, again, sometimes weeks ahead of the actual release date, I'll put up the video form of the episode on the Patreon. So not only do you get it early, but you also get to see my lovely mug. You also get access to lost and unreleased episodes of the podcast, as well as all of the scripts, that kind of thing. Plus, there is the weekly Patreon vlog series that I've now been doing as a little way to give back a little bit more to my lovely patrons. And the sixth vlog has now been released. It's, it's a doozy, all right. Basically, I, I just did the top mistakes and fuck-ups of Paul or Nothing over the last few years. And uh, I had to be very self-reflective, very honest with myself. And uh, yeah... Cringes and laughs were had on the way, let's just say that. But before we continue, folks, I just want to thank my entire Patreon family for supporting me, for allowing this show to continue, for giving me the motivation to do this every week. And those people are David Stiberski, Mitzi Carter, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Lou DiLonardo, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, Sharon McCoy, Matt Phillips, and of course, Percy Thrillington himself. Anyway, now that that is all out of the way, folks, we've done all the plugs, it's now time to crack on with the episode at hand. Let's cut to the live feed. One, two, three, me. Let's go. Now, folks, once again, before I begin, I do want to point out that there are still some unreleased tracks from around this era that we simply know exist but have no access to, even with bootlegs. As hard as it is to believe, there are actually hundreds of unreleased Paul McCartney songs, meaning that they were either successfully guarded by the MPL elves, were lost, or remained part of the McCartney private collection. For the period that we're covering today, we have the following mystery tunes. 
Nearly Rebel Music, Slow Caves, Seattle Build-Up, Tremolo, Take Me to the Garden, Whole Wide World, Butterflies, and DD. Of course, if any of you have any access to these songs at all, please hit me up via the email at paulmccartneypod.gmail.com and, you know, sort us out, yeah? Anyway, on to the songs themselves, and starting off incredibly strongly today, we have what is easily one of the greatest singles Wings ever released. Don't say it, don't say it, this is Goodnight Tonight. Starting off strong today, folks. I mean, this is a borderline front-loaded episode. You know, alongside tracks like Coming Up, Among Very Moon Delight, and Loving Song, Pretty Little Hair Distractions, Through Our Love, Single Pigeon. This song is what I consider to be the cream of the McCartney crop. Always have, always will. This is easily one of the most uniquely original compositions that Paul has ever come up with, and is easily the highlight of the final wings lineup. Like, I really can't stress enough how fucking awesome this song is, folks. And thank God I don't have a guest for this one, as the next few minutes is literally just going to be me gushing over and foaming at the mouth in regards to this track. I can actually remember the first time I came across the video on YouTube during the earliest days of my McCartney fandom and of the podcast, and I can equally remember being totally spellbound. Of course, we've already covered said video in episodes passing, but yeah, seeing Paul and the band in their 20s garb, along with this strange fusion of Mediterranean guitar, rock and synthy disco, was the perfect concoction to inflame my curiosity. It was an alluring combination of awesome, bedazzling and straight-up weird, which is pure McCartney. This song also has a special place in my heart because of a past relationship. Those who remember the earliest episodes of the show will remember a big breakup that I went through and talked about quite publicly in an episode, in a bonus episode. And on the day we broke up, I popped on this song, or it came on shuffle, and I had a very cinematic moment in my head as the words, don't say it, don't say goodnight tonight, were repeating. I was having all these very vivid flashbacks of our relationship, and it really hit me as to how final everything was. I still get a few of those flashbacks to those flashbacks whenever I hear this song and it's a prime example to me as to how one can be impacted by music beyond just the songs themselves like I do have a very deep connection with this track anyway on to the song itself let's brighten things up and this is a composition that has always been a fascinating part of the McCartney oeuvre for me 
Most shorthand descriptions of this song describe it as disco, but that's far too simplistic for my liking. I mean, yeah, McCartney was inspired by disco when he wrote this one, and the drumming and the overall beat is very disco, but there is so much more to this song. You, you know, McCartney's songs are very rarely so easy to categorise, and this is a prime example of that. As mentioned, the song begins with a solo Latin-style Mediterranean guitar, it has some new wave bass line and production style. It boasts a classic rock vocal from Paul along with some guitars. It also has synth and vocoder style vocals. You know, this thing's all over the place. But under McCartney's signature gaze, it all blends and works together seamlessly. Now, despite this track being performed live by the whole band several times and vid the video features all of them, the track is actually more of a solo Paul venture, which makes sense considering the timeline, as the entire original recording of the track, of which the rest of the song was built up from, was recorded solely by McCartney at his home in January of 78, no less, aka during the London Town Sessions. Now, you could see this as inspiration not being able to wait till the next recording session or Paul starting to stray further from the band, but that is entirely speculative. You know, he, he, he still brought it to them and trusted them with it. He didn't hold it off for himself at a later date. Though, one giveaway that this is more of a solo Paul joint is the use of a drum machine, which we have seen over the last few Cold Cut episodes is key to his home demos. Then, as Lawrence Juba points out here, he, Denny and Paul, finished off the track in January of 79. He says... Paul's recording was unfinished, so we did some work on it in January of 79 at Replica Studios in the basement of the MPL Soho office in London. Denny and I did some electric parts echoing Paul's existing lead guitar, though I don't remember who suggested the acoustic lead break, but the Spanish flavour was an obvious choice. I didn't have an acoustic guitar with me, so I used Denny's Ovation Adamas guitar. It was a very quick one-take flamenco flourish. Though that wasn't the only overdub, and despite the track mostly featuring a drumming machine for the percussion, it was not the only percussive element, as Steve Holly details. He says, I had just spent some time in Morocco and brought some clay hand drums back with me. I added those to Paul's drum machine percussion. I believe we all sang on the chorus as well. Sadly, McCartney decided that this god-tier material was not fit for what Back to the Egg was shaping up to be, and so he decided that it was going to be a non-album single in the vein of Live and Let Die, Helen Wheels and Mull of Kintyre. Of course, being that the song tops out at just over 7 minutes and 20 seconds, it did have to be trimmed down to physically make it onto a 7-inch single. This led to two versions of the song being released simultaneously, with the 7-minute version, now dubbed the extended disco version being released on a 12-inch maxi single and the 4 minute 20 second single mix being released on a regular 7-inch single. Both versions featured daytime nighttime suffering as the B-side, though sadly despite the extra space the 12-inch maxi single did not include an additional B-side, which considering all the stuff we're going to go through today is actually quite egregious. The main differences between the two are an alternate vocal track by McCartney which is very obvious during the opening of the extended version, longer synth solos, along with lengthy stretches of no vocals at all. 
Of course, being that it was a disco version, this was meant to be the version of the songs for clubs to play and was meant to physically be danced to. The song was also a part of the final wing set list just before their parting of ways, and it was performed a total of 18 times in 79. Paul also played it at the concert for Africa Express in 2012 and once at a private party in 2013. Maybe this track could be one of the surprises he has in store for us. You never know. Speaking of Muller Kintyre, though, rather interestingly, this was supposedly another song where the record company, a.k.a. Paul's newly signed company Columbia Records, had no faith that it was going to succeed whatsoever. The execs who had heard it learned by this point that the best way to be with Paul, the best policy, was to be honest with him. And despite them telling him that they didn't think this was going to be a top seller, he stubbornly went ahead and released it anyway. I'm guessing record companies have to put up with this from Paul more regularly than we would ever know, but luckily it mostly paid off this time around, with it getting to number five in the UK and the US, with over a million copies sold in the States alone. Ironically, once the song was a hit, the record company proceeded to then scold Paul for not including it on Back to the Egg. You really can't win with these suits. Now, when the topic of Paul McCartney's solo bass lines come up, people always go to Silly Love Songs as the de facto top-tier choice. But for me, it has always been Goodnight Tonight. Yeah, Silly Love Songs has a very technically impressive, complex and melodic bass line that certainly helps make the song as iconic as it is. But this bass line, the bass line for Goodnight Tonight, is a far more effective, nuanced, intriguing and emotionally resonant, especially out of those two. Now, your opinion may differ, and I don't decry you for that, but for me, the simple repetition of that is just so fucking cool and subversively funky. It's a very lyrical bass line that really reminds you of the brevity in Paul's own actual lyricism in that he really isn't having to do all that much to get across the tone and the mood of the song. You know, it's almost like he's trying to actively create an unexpectedly un-McCartney-like bass line, and in doing so, he ends up coming up with one of his most iconic ones to date. Another aspect of this song that is a total standout is his vocals. Like, you really get to bear witness to Paul's full range over the course of the song, and it's such a joy being able to hear him go from this very reserved, casual, almost whisper during the verses before really cranking it back up to his powerful rock star for the chorus. You also get a healthy dose of random Macca vocalisations, which always get me. You know, you get these little barks and whoops. Like I absolutely just love them. You're like, bah, bah, bah. oh no, wah, wah, wah. that stuff's just great. The backing vocals are also oh so uplifting. During the choruses, they really hammer home the idea of literally not saying goodnight tonight and conveying and selling that drama effectively. Steve Holly, in another quote, alludes to the idea that the whole band likely took part in these harmonies. And knowing that it is the whole band together does give the track a very uplifting, you know, communal feeling. But sadly, you can't really pick out Steve or Juba all that much and I imagine it likely would have sounded as amazing either way if it had just included Denny and Linda. Speaking of Linda, the real selling point of these harmonies for me is how prominent Linda is in the mix. I mean, 
Whenever I hear Linda, it makes me smile, but she adds that certain magical quality here that elevates it and makes it into that classic Wings harmony. Then, during one of the breakdowns towards the end, you get these very strange altered vocals that sound very robotic and artificial. Now, I've got to assume that these vocals are either in a talk box or a vocoder or something like that. And it's just another one of these random instruments that McCartney's thrown in there along with a kitchen sink because he can. Though the real mystery is what the hell he's saying. I've always interpreted it as I shan't go home or I won't go home, as in they won't leave and say goodnight. But if any of you out there have any other theories, again, drop me an email at gmail.com. Also, just before those vocal parts, you also get this strange-ass synth part, like solo, that reminds you of the pipe solo from Footprints, you know, that... Like, what the hell is that? You know, again, if you know what that is, please hit me up on the same email. Going back to the guitars in this song, this is low-key one of the most interesting guitar songs in the entire Wings catalogue. Like, there's not an iconic riff or anything, a few McCartney songs do, but there are two really out there, really interesting standout moments on this song where the guitarists get to shine. Neither of them are disco, I should point out. Uh, neither of them make a whole lot of sense either, and yet they kick so much ass, it is unreal. First of all, despite what Lawrence said earlier, I choose to believe that it was him who introduced the idea of the flamenco-esque guitar. And the idea that Lawrence, or anyone else, uh, added this completely left-of-field element is just so exciting for me. Like, the idea that it works so well in this completely inappropriate setting is a testament to his own instincts, as well as Paul's ability to produce it so naturally. Carrying on with the acoustic guitar, we're also treated to a very beautiful little acoustic solo. It's very brief, but that does not take away from the technical prowess on display there. It, it really is rather gorgeous. But that's not where the solos end. In addition, we're also blessed with a whole load of electric guitar work going on, proud display, with the acoustic leading into not one, but two electric solos. Okay, one, but with two guitars and guitarists. And we haven't really had a more than one lead guitar part on a song involving Paul since like the end on Abbey Road. And yet here we get a wonderfully aggressive and playful dueling guitar element in the middle of the song. Everything goes quiet during this, this little breakdown and veteran wings guitarist Denny Lane and newcomer Lawrence Juba have this very adept, very lyrical, very poetic, very exciting, enthusiastic back and forth that is easily one of the best things on the song. Like, I just love the way that, that they call and respond to each other. It's so much fun. I mean, everything about this song is fun, folks. And that's the thing. I can't help but say only positive things about this song. It is so important to me. It's probably in my top five or top ten. It, it is that good. But yeah, that's pretty much everything I wanted to say about Goodnight Tonight. It is incredible. It's a shame it's not a bigger hit. Like, as far as I'm concerned, this should be up there in the public knowledge with tracks like Bang on the Run, Jet, or Silly Love Songs. And yet it just sits below that threshold of super popular. Those who know it, dig it. But I want everyone to dig it. You dig? 
Moving on from one of the greatest wings A sides, we can now talk about one of the great wings B sides. This is Daytime Nighttime Suffering. What does she get for all the love she gave you? There on the ladder of regret. I do river, give her all she gave. This was a track that I actually heard relatively late into my Wings fandom. It was always one of those song titles that I knew of and had read a few times and had spotted on the old playlist, but for some reason I never got around to it, which is totally my loss, because, yeah, this is another of the biggins. Like, whenever a McCartney fan talks about the best of the B-sides or non-album tracks, this tune is always rightfully brought up and ranked immediately very high and for good reason. What's even better is that Paul himself cites this song as being, quote-unquote, one of his favourites in a 1984 interview with Oprah Winfrey. This high appraisal from Paul actually continued into an interview with Billboard in 2001, where he goes into a little more detail as to why he likes it so gosh darn much, stating, That's a pro-woman song. What does she get for all of this? Daytime, nighttime suffering. It's about the plight of women. I say that's what I would be most proud of, as would any artist. You know, Paul really does enjoy this song, and he always talks about it. Like, it used to be his Check My Machine as a, a song from his past and obscure one that he'd like to point people towards. Now, I've repeated ad nauseum ever since the release of Paul McCartney's The Lyrics that the majority of Paul's songs, romantic or not, have indeed centred around women as the go-to topic. And... Daytime Nighttime Suffering may just be one of the most insightful, deep, and investigative looks at the feminine perspective in his entire songbook. Like, this could easily be seen as the third in a trilogy of profound women-based songs in his career, beginning with Eleanor Rigby and continued by Another Day, with entries two and three bookending his tenure in Wings perfectly. I mean, even just looking at the first verse of the song proper, in a vacuum, you can instantly tell what kind of vibe he's going for. What does she get for the love she gave you? There on the ladder of regrets. Daytime, nighttime suffering is all she gets. Again, the brevity of McCartney's lyricism shines all the brighter here. In just three lines, he basically sums up countless relationships that have existed throughout history. He has stopped, looked around him, and seen that so many relationships out there between men and women are completely one-sided, one-sided in who is giving the real love and one-sided in who is having to deal with a world of shit because of it. Now, this could be as banal as a lazy, unloving man where the woman is trapped by societal norms or marriage, but it could even be extended to that of a woman who suffers from gross abuse in all forms and 
possibly even still end up loving the men they are with. Also, the idea of nighttime suffering could be taken to a very grim extreme if you would such interpret it that way. What's so touching, though, is how non-judgmental Makani is in his insights here. He doesn't blame the women. He doesn't blame the victim here. It's just a story he's telling. He's looking at the world around him and reporting back. You know, everyone wants love and everyone makes mistakes and sometimes people can end up in horrible situations. But instead of focusing on the how and the why, he just talks about how wrong it is, which is really brave of him, really. Also, the idea of the ladder of regrets is a truly fantastic image that oh so succinctly captures the numerous wrongs that this hypothetical woman has had put upon her in this relationship. You know, each regret, each mistake is another rung on this never-ending ladder. But the metaphor also works in the sense that maybe she's having to climb higher and higher to maybe get out of a hole or a bad place, or, you know, in an attempt to reach somewhere hopefully better if she keeps climbing. You know, maybe the, the tragedy is she'll never finish climbing it. McCartney's ahead-of-his-time insight into the plight of women is repeated again throughout the other verses. We have, Where are all the prizes for the game she entered, with little chance of much success? And, What does it pay to play the leading lady, when, like the damsel in distress, both end with daytime, nighttime suffering, is all she gets? Again, Paul is just reinforcing how often it is for women to give it their all in a relationship, only to not reap any benefit or reciprocation whatsoever. But with each of those, he adds just a little bit more for you to think about. In that second verse, he hints the, at the idea that many women who give their love were never going to be successful in that love anyway, as presumably the men were never any good to begin with, or because of the way society is structured in the first place. And I like how a relationship is like put as a, a game and she should have a prize. Like, yeah, if you enter into a relationship, you should get something out of it. And all she gets is daytime, nighttime suffering. And finally, in the third verse, Paul is, again, incredibly astute as the metaphor of a woman playing the leading lady, having to be the damsel in distress, is so perfect for describing a situation where a woman or women are regularly put into positions where they have to lose something or make themselves passive or even put themselves in danger in order to get something that they want or think that they want. Then you have the whole middle eighth, aka the river section, which goes like, come on river, overflow, let your love for your people show, come on river, flow through me, let your love for your people be, you are the river, I am the stream, flow mighty river through me. This part may seem a little bit disconnected from the rest of the song, but you've got that little opening a cappella-esque bit where it goes, what does she get for all the love she gave you there on the ladder of regrets? Mighty river, give her all she gets. Now, there is a lot to unpack there. Like, I think we can ascertain that the man is the river here and the woman is the stream. And so first we must ask ourselves, what's the difference between a river and a stream? And on encyclopedia.com, the two are defined as thus. A river is a natural flow of running water, what follows a well-defined permanent path, usually within a valley. A stream, also called a brook or creek, is a natural flow of water that follows a more temporary path that is usually not in a valley. 
And of course, whilst I don't think that Paul was using the set definitions of encyclopedia.com back in 1978, I still think that the definitions have largely remained the same over the last 50 years or so. And the way I see it, the river, the larger, more established path, i.e. masculine society, is the one who flows through the other more temporary, less established waterway, i.e. the woman. And, you know, one is more dominating and dictating the flow of things. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I think that's more or less what Paul was going for. Man, I've done a really deep dive on those lyrics, no pun intended. And so I better talk about the song and instrumentation and the production, right? Well, first thing you have to point out about this song is that it sounds like no other Wings rocker at all. I mean, the atmosphere has elements of this really quite uplifting, soaring positivity, which contrasts with the lyrics excellently, I might add, to this very sinister, realistic, foreboding kind of tone. I guess the best way to describe it would be that it's very dynamic and mercurial, and it manages to balance so many tones and feelings masterfully. But what really holds the song together is that beat and that groove. Like, the song just swings from start to finish and it has this real relentless quality to it where you can just get lost in that beat without thinking too much about the nature of the song until you re-listen to it and I think that might be the point. Being that the beat is so crucial I can't like this song without mentioning the drums and boy are they really prominent in this track they're really brought up in the mix and I've only just noticed that in recent listens it's also a really fantastic introduction to the capabilities of Steve Holly, and we get to hear a wide range of speeds, styles, and rudiments across this entire song. I mean, his hi-hat work is just some of the best in the entire McCartney canon. Like, this guy really knows how to play drums, and it's so, so light and effortless. In terms of guitar, there isn't really a riff or even chords that they constantly play, but instead we get these short, sharp punctuations and fill that add just that little bit of extra texture and playfulness in the song and it allows those moments that soar to you know give the song a bit of extra punch where it's needed as with a lot of the back to the egg material we also get a healthy dollop of keyboards and after the opening acapella like start the full instrumentation begins with Linda doing that da, 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 which also has this wicked little half-second flourish at the end of every run-through, which almost sounds like a mistake, but it's key for the song to work in that little... Blup. I love that little just extra bit in there. It's cracking. Uh, throughout the rest of the song, like a couple of other tracks that we're going to look at today, what Linda does do is just add this subtle layer of heightened tension and drama with these long, high-pitched, droning notes. Like She's not really doing anything that technical, but, you know, it's, it's key to the tableau of the song. On to the vocals now, and this is another case where Paul just completely knocks it out of the park. He gives us this quite reserved delivery in the opening verses, but as the song and the choruses progress onwards, he builds up in his intensity to this quintessential McCartney howl. And during the bridges, there's also this quite thrilling growl that he probably thinks his 90s, like, middle-aged growl sounds like, but it doesn't. It's got this great resonance and timbre to it, and it 
really sells his compassion and his investment in this topic. But you know, he's not doing it in actor McCartney way. Like you, like you can just tell that these are things that he really feels passionate about. There's also a lot of classic Wings harmonies here. Again, the song starts off with that a cappella bit, which sounds like the whole band once more, as it's so rich and full. It really does capture attention from the get-go, and the lack of instrumentation bar a single guitar strum means that you actually do focus on the lyrics for that part, the all-important message of the song, um, which is probably why McCartney doesn't begin with that keyboard bit. I'm actually contradicting myself there. Does McCartney want you to take note of the message at first or after? Maybe both. Maybe he's playing the field. The song is also bookended by those harmonies, leaving you with the question once more before the end. There's also like a little breakdown with these almost barbershop quartet style harmony sections, like which is nowhere near as complex as, say, silly love songs, but it's still a lovely example of the layering in Wings harmonies, and Paul is able to spin all these plates and moving parts excellently. Once more, there's also a lot of Linda in the mix here, and this time it actually makes a lot of sense because thematically she's the woman in the band and she should be prominent in this song. Anyway, now that I've talked you through every part of the song, I better let you know where it came from, especially since the backstory to this song has always been one of my favourite snapshot looks into the microcosm world of Wings as a recording band. Trust me, it really shines a light on the dynamic between Paul and his posse. According to the book Band on the Run, A History of Paul McCartney and Wings by Barry McGee, the writing of the song went a little something like this. When Wings was recording Back to the Egg, Paul had announced to the other band members that if they could come up with a good enough song, it would be recorded and put on the B-side of the single. Such a generous gesture opened financial doors for the other band members, as the song could earn a small fortune as the flip side of a hit single. Each member, including Linda, spent the weekend trying to compose the song. But when Monday morning rolled around, Paul announced that he had written the one. So yeah, basically what happened was, Paul challenged all of his bandmates, who are not known for writing classics nearly as quickly or as consistently as he is, to write a classic in the same amount of time that he has, whilst he is also taking part in the same competition, before then simply deciding that his one was the best anyway. It's a bit of a douchey move, and it certainly points to the idea that he's leaning back towards his domineering role within the band, you know, similar to the early days in the at the start of the band's life cycle, while the band's now at the end of its life cycle. There's a bit of a mirroring going on there. And we've never had any information as to what songs the other band members put forward or whether any of them were since released. But unless the two of them included Again and Again and Again or Maisie, a song that we're going to talk about later, it seems that Paul wasted everyone's weekend and got rid of the evidence. So yeah, as negative a peek into the world of the Wings backstory that this song gives you, it shouldn't detract from the final product, folks. You know, if some bandmates were shafted a little insensitively along the way, I think the ends truly does justify the means here, because daytime, nighttime suffering is fucking awesome. Plain and simple. Bye-bye. See you later. Next up, and we have the first of several songs that, aside from the two non-album tracks that we just heard, easily could have made it onto Back to the Egg. A question we would all love to hear Paul ask us. This is, did we meet somewhere before?
So this is the first song that we're talking about here today that I actually heard for the very first time on my club sandwich one of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts. It was a very formative album, really, in terms of sealing the deal with my obsession with obscure as fuck Paul McCartney songs. And without it, I may not be as familiar with or as infatuated with this song as I currently am. It didn't click with me right away, but it didn't take long for this to become a low-key favourite of mine from this period. Anyway, this was recorded with the Back to the Eggs lineup of Wings in the summer of 78, and despite being present in every discussion about what songs could have made it onto the final track listing, it turns out that Did We Meet Somewhere Before was never intended for inclusion on the album, but instead for use in a new film called Heaven Can Wait, starring and co-directed by Warren Beatty. I've never heard of it. However, according to legend, Beatty himself was unsatisfied with the song for unspecified reasons, and the final version of the film did not include it. Although, that was not the end for this composition, as it would make its way onto a film soundtrack. After its rejection, it got a second chance two years later, at the beginning of the Ramones Rock and Roll High School movie. Never seen or heard of that one either. Apparently, though, being so unwanted, the director, Alan Arkush, could apparently use the song in the film for a meagre $500, which is low even for the time. However, it's only a snippet of the track, there's no on-screen credit, and nor is the song on the soundtrack LP. Though, it is mentioned that music by Paul McCartney and Wings will be included on the film's poster. Wow, talk about taking what you can get. And what's with Hollywood rejecting this song so roundly? Well, it's their loss, folks, because this is truly one of the great lost McCartney unreleased tracks. Unlike another similar song on this episode, despite being one of the most sincere, earnest and romantic of all the cold cuts, Did We Meet Somewhere Before has not made it onto any B-side release either. It's a shame. If Paul was more comfortable with including unreleased material as B-sides like he was during the Flaming Pie era, you know, I could totally see this as being a perfect flip on the disc, you know? You totally could have had this on the reverse of any of the Back to the Egg singles, but no, for some shameful reason, it's relegated to being in the position that only superfans are aware of. This is especially annoying, though, as Back to the Egg is one of those albums where the singles have no non-album material at all, whilst also having plenty to include. You know, despite a song that was written to spec for a non-Wings project, it's still surprisingly deep and emotive, and includes McCartney's own proclivity in conveying Hollywood-level storytelling in his lyrics. You know, it's just so fucking effective. There's a real sense of history in this song, and there's a background set of law really being implied in the lyrics. Yeah, he does repeat two verses, but in a sense, that only works in his favour in highlighting the brevity in the songwriting. In between six to eight short lines, he really builds up a mythology surrounding these two potential lovers, and notably does not give any answers. We never find out if these two met before, which does leave some room for this to be a fancy love at first sight kind of narrative. But 
with a sense of the uncanny potentially being thrown in there. I think I've always vibed with this song so strongly, as it reminds me of Michel Gondry's film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, in which lovers, uh, played by Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, have their memories of each other erased, but still end up falling in love with each other all over again. I don't know, just the idea of bumping into someone you really clicked with years ago, but never got to enact upon or consummate that romance, only to bump into them again, is so romantic and emotional. And I believe that everyone on Earth can relate to it in some form. This style also implies that we're hearing Paul write from the perspective of two older lovers looking back on their life together. You know, Paul writes about old people from time to time. It's always so evocative, and it is again here. Now, I do have to admit that the line, all the king's horses and all the king's men never find out what it's about, is more than a little cringy. Like, I'm not saying it's a dustbin lid level line or that it derails the song or anything, but it is a bit tonally off topic, to say the least. And the fact that you hear it so many times over the course of the song only compounds the issue. Every time you're getting a little lost in the high drama of this love affair, you're then slapped with this very silly line and it's it's a bit irksome. I mean, it is the only part of the song that I'd say does need some form of rewrite, though... Upon reflection, it's very much the kind of sticky line that Paul would do, so I don't know how upset I'm really allowed to be by it. Also, I've only just noticed this in the research for this episode, and it may depend on which bootleg mix you have, but during said All the King's Horses line, you can actually hear hooves clip-clopping and horses whinnying and neighing in the background of the mix. Now, I don't know about you, but it's that kind of flourish that is peak silly producer Paul for me. It's up there with the kiss in Listen to What the Man Said or the soaring of wood in Uela Soleil. I love it, and it does take the sting out of that line a little bit for me. Still, no matter your opinion on the lyrics, it's the instrumentation on this song that truly cannot be sniffed at, and you can tell that Paul really wanted to deliver the goods in terms of making something that would at least sound like it would be at home amongst his other familiar classics. The song's uniquely alluring opening melody is still to this day the main part of the song that gets me hooked every time. It's one of those instrumental moments that you kind of forget about, meaning it gets to sink its tendrils into your brain almost freshly every time you hear it. Though there is a little bit of debate over what instrument it actually is. You know, being a cold cut, there's very little actually written about it. And so it's hard to tell whether it's a clarinet or a soprano saxophone. Now, on one hand, there are parts of the song that sound very sax-like indeed, but on the other, Warren Beatty's character in the film is actually a part-time clarinet player, which only adds to the confusion. One of my Twitter followers, Michael Platt, aka at Wolfie622, did manage to chime in with their own expertise, stating, I'm a professional clarinet and saxophone player. The instrument in the YouTube recording is definitely a saxophone, though I think a clarinet would have served the song better. If you too have an answer, please drop me an email at paulmccarnipod at gmail.com. But yeah, whatever instrument it is, it certainly has a very old-world classical beguile to it that I find totally irresistible. You know, even outside of the mystery of the instrument itself, it gives off that sense of, where's this song going to go when you hear it? And, you know, the mystery that it conjures alongside those keyboard synth parts is very tangible indeed. This is also another song where I genuinely can't tell whether all or some of the horns and strings are synth-based or not. 
Some mixes sound more artificial than others for sure, and seeing as how I couldn't find any information to support an orchestral session, I am inclined to say they're synths. However, if it is for a movie specifically, then I can imagine that Paul will have splashed out on some extra players, especially since he got a clarinet slash sax player in, for example. You also get loads of really fun, ethereal, distant, incorporeal guitar parts from Lance Juba. The tone itself is very wet and warbly, and again, on paper, it sounds like it would be at odds with the production, and instead, it makes those long, drawn-out verses feel a little more lively and dynamic, I guess? Likely, he seems to have a lot more free reign when compared to the rest of the orchestral elements in the song, and he adds these constant little flourishes and counter-melodies in the background that really are very soothing and romantic. During the pre-chorus, you also get these wickedly intense keyboard parts, probably from Linda, and we're going to see this a lot on this episode, but her work is actually very deft and fitting and complimentary. I mean, of course, Paul is probably coaching her to do all of it, but the parts themselves are a lot more complex than anyone would give her credit for. It's very indicative of the fact that she's been playing this instrument now for the best part of a decade, and they are completely irremovable from the song. And, you know, the way they pierce through the mix and add that little dash of heightened melodrama is is so key to why it works. Wow, I never knew I had so much to say about this song, but once I started writing about it, I couldn't stop. And to me at least, it kind of proves, in its own little way, that this song is more interesting and more insightful than just a song that McCartney failed to get on the soundtrack, you know? Again, I don't know why Beatty didn't like it, and it really is an injustice because if it was on a soundtrack, we'd have some form of formal release for it, and we'd be able to listen to it on legitimate streaming services rather than just on YouTube and bootleg vinyls. Let's hope we get it on a Back to the Egg archive release real soon. On to another song that always gets brought up in regards to its potential incorporation into Back to the Egg. We have C-A-G-E, It's Cage. <laughs> This song has reached almost meme status as arguably the cold cut that Wings fans wish was included on an album. It's always referenced when people are discussing their favourite unreleased McCartney tunes, and I know exactly what they're on about, as this is, again, another one of those lost great McCartney rockers. This song is a blast from start to finish, and it has everything that all Macca fans would ever want in a single song. You have two distinct elements that have been stitched together, you have a fun rock section, 
uh, an emotional ballad section, silly production choices, a strong melody, a catchy set of lyrics, and a whole lot of heart. The song truly has everything, and again, I love it. In fact, this is probably one of the very first McCartney cold cuts that I ever heard, and so my relationship with it is very deep indeed. Like, the moment you read about Back to the Egg in any detail, this song is immediately mentioned, and you can't help but go looking for it. And the moment I did hear it, as well as the slew of other versions that I found on the Back to the Egg Sessions bootleg CD, I was totally smitten with it, and I've always found its production history to be incredibly fascinating. Originally titled Emotional Moments, this is another song that was first workshopped solo by McCartney during his period of extensive home recordings in the mid-78 period, and at this point, it was purely an instrumental. Though, this makes sense, as the entire conceit of the song is that the chord progression literally spells out the word cage. Yes, folks, the chords to this song are literally C-A-G-E. Not gonna lie, I can't believe that this kind of gimmick wasn't already cooked up once before, and I feel like someone somewhere must have done something similar. But yeah, that's the genesis of this song, which is already very corny. It's a very McCartney idea that ends up working far better than it ever should deserve to. But yeah, let's have a quick look at that original demo.
Then, after this instrumental track was laid down, Paul began to mess around with the lyrics for this song, with a large chunk of them not actually making their way onto the final version. And just so I don't flood you with three versions of this song in under five minutes, the bonus track at the end of this episode will be one of the alternate lyrics versions of Cage. Also, in both home recording takes, the final Calliope-like section is not placed at the end, and it is instead used as the final part of the main melody. Also, the I've been sent to tell you section of the song is not present whatsoever. Moving on to the main Back to the A recording sessions during the summer of 78, and Paul finally brought in this song to the studio as a potential bit of material for the album, as detailed by Lawrence Juba. We spent some serious time on this song, based on a series of fragments, contrasting the riff-driven Emotional Moments Cage intro and outro with a rolling medium-tempo pop core. We later added a Calliope-like bridge section, one session at the castle was spent placing microphones around Paul's Rolls-Royce to capture the sound of the car horn. It was not the most productive few hours, and the part worked much better on a mini Moog. Still, they completed the song, and much to the chagrin of Wings fans the world over, even though the song was originally slated to close the album, which would have given it a greater rock number percentage, it was replaced last minute by Baby's Request, which, despite... Cage being a very obviously McCartney-styled song is an even more obviously McCartney-styled song. If this was the early Wings era, this song totally would have been part of their set list later that year, but from that point onwards, despite Paul doing some work for it on Cold Cuts in the mid-80s, it has remained on the shelf ever since. So yeah, I've gotten distracted by the backstory again, so let's talk about the song itself. Let's start off with the titular part of the song, the Cage segment. And yeah, this is the instantly most recognisable and classic part of the whole song. And for the sake of time, I'll talk about both parts of the Cage segment, as it's essentially a bookend piece to either side of the song. The guitar work is charmingly simple, and it has a, an almost delightful clunkiness to it, giving it a real sense of heft and weight uh, you know, it almost feels like an old-fashioned 50s rock and roll riff in that sense. Plus, I can't help but find the progression, you know, of the chords and notes to be anything but charming, being that they actually spell out the word of the song. The tone they have is awesome. You know, you get, you get something that's quite raucous, yet not overbearingly loud in its sound. You also get some great synth work, along with some proper McCartney-esque silly production sounds thrown in there, and some hilariously childish hoots and whoops from Paul himself. And finally, I've also got to give a quick shout out to Steve Holly's instantaneous, immediately thrilling drumbeat that kicks off the song with such a fun energy. The lyrics for this part of the song are delightfully lightweight and corny, as per much of McCartney's discography. Emotional moments you left in a rage, but if you could love me now, I won't be in a cage. Provisional license, I'm under arrest, but if you could get me out, I'd like to take another test. And then at the end, you've got emotional moments you left in a rage, but if you could look me now, I won't be in a cage. Dramatic performance direct from the stage, but if you could get me out, I won't be in a cage. And I just love how they literally mean nothing. And yet they are still so resonant within the McCartney fandom. Like, I find no reviews where people complain about these lyrics for being silly or underwritten on autopilot. And I think that's because it's part of that McCartney Rorschach test where they really can mean anything you want them to and the way he sings them with that 
charm and you, you, feel, you can feel the smile on his face is just so appealing. Then we come on to the I've Been Sent to Tell You segment. And I can remember when I was first listening to this song, I was kind of disappointed that this is the real lion's share of the runtime. <laughs> like, the song really should be called I've Been Sent to Tell You, because that's what you get. But I've come to accept the fact that if it was just the cage stuff over and over again, like we hear in some of the demos, it would just be a little bit too samey. Plus, having these two segments stitched together is, again, very McCartney-esque and means the song can do lots of new things and keep you interested. Lyrically, it's a very familiar kind of McCartney narrative. It's very reminiscent of something like She Loves You, where there's this intermediary doing all the talking on the behalf of a lover. Like, it literally begins with, I've been sent to tell you. And it adds a certain spark to the lyrics, in that the very idea of this intermediary adds so much to the narrative. It makes you ask questions. Who is this person? Why have they been sent? Why hasn't the lover come themselves? Etc. And it even puts a fun bit of ambiguity as we have to place our trust entirely in this middleman who's delivering some pretty bad news about the lover being a liar. Then we come to the Calliope segment of the song. And this isn't the first time I'd heard of a Calliope. Uh, my first podcast, Down in the Hole, which I'll never talk about. Um, Tom Waits has a song called Calliope, which is the titular instrument in the song. And for anyone who doesn't know what one is, a Calliope is an instrument that achieves sound by sending air or gas through a series of whistles, like, you know, one of those big circus organs. Do, 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 do. Though I imagine that the ones you hear on this track are synth-based. What I like so much about this section, though, is that it adds a third dimension to the song. Like, if you thought that the main two sections were barely related or similar at all, well, you won't see nothing yet. In conclusion, folks, the worst thing I can say about this song is that it leaves you wanting more. Like, everything about this song feels woefully short, and yet it doesn't come across as unfinished or half-baked. And I guess the only conclusion is that this is McCartney at his most theatrical and giving us a song that we literally want to put back on the moment we are done listening to it. Or at least that would be the case if it was officially released in any capacity. On to another track that I also heard on my vinyl copy of Cold Cuts and Hot Hits. This is Same Time Next Year. Must we wait another year for the celebration, dear? If we do, we'll hold it here. Same time next year. I'll be here the same as ever, maybe wearing something else. Ah, but nothing changes. Nothing changes Still to me You look the same As when I forgot your name Love is in a lover's game same This is another track of which I've only really become familiar with relatively recently And whilst I don't think of it being on the same level as Did We Meet Somewhere Before I still consider it a real pity that it's only seen a release as part of the 12-inch maxi-single release for Put It There in 1990. Straight up though, this song should have come out way before then, and whilst it doesn't reach the heights of Did We Meet Somewhere Before, it's still a very solid McCartney ballad of the period. It's part of that fun, 
genre of super melodramatic, overly saccharine, high romance kind of songs. And even if we're, you know, B-side material for Tug of War or Pipes of Peace material, it still would have worked. If anything, this track reminds me of more of the classical music that McCartney would come to work on in years to come. Like, it doesn't sound a whole lot like it, it's just that the melody and part of the arrangements are very, you know, reminiscent of it. Of course, we've already mentioned that Paul was doing a lot of solo writing during this period, and this song is no different. Though, sadly, there is no poor-quality drum track bootleg version of this that has been leaked, which I'd love to hear. What we do know is that Paul had a very specific vision, both for the Wings element and the orchestrations. Steve Holly details the Wings recording session, which took place on the 5th of May 78, here. He had a very complete arrangement. We were definitely not fishing for parts. Then, on the next day, Paul assembled what is referred to in Luca Parassi's book Paul McCartney, The Recording Years, as a very large orchestra. Apparently, it was so lavish and well-stocked that it could boast a 69-person strong string section, consisting of 18 first violins, 16 second violins, 14 violas, 12 cellos, and 9 basses, plus a quartet of clarinets and a quartet of recorders. Paul co-arranged this orchestra with one Fiatra or Fiacra Trench, who was the man behind some of the arrangements on Wings at the Speed of Sound, including The Note You Never Wrote and Warm and Beautiful. When describing his orchestral session, he said the following. Unlike our work on the Wings at the Speed of Sound tracks, where I was given a free hand, on this occasion, Paul handed me a draft of his string arrangement, all written out with the names of each note to be played, because he didn't read or write musical notation. He said, now you go and make it better. Which... I assume he did. Another instrument used for this song was called a kimbalom. Of course, this is the very strange stringy instrument that you can hear throughout most of this song. And for anyone who doesn't know what a kimbalom is, including myself, uh, it probably would be quick of you just to go and look it up, as it ain't half a weird one. And I guarantee you that it's so strange that I probably wouldn't be able to do it justice in my explanation. But yeah, it was it was so odd that it was actually very hard to find a player for it. Trench describes it as such, stating, The player was John Leach, who is a composer as well as a player of the zither, the kimbalon, and other ethnic instruments. He was, and still is, the only such player I know of in England. Now, I don't know why it was so hard to track down John Leach to play on this track, as he also played the kimbalon for Paul on the Thrillington album, as well as for George Martin himself on the Live and Let Die soundtrack album. Anyway, in a rather hilariously sad sequence of events, it turns out that this song was also written for a film soundtrack. It was for a film, fittingly titled, Same Time Next Year, with Ellen Bernstein and Alan Alder. Again, never heard of it. Apparently, Again, according to McCartney law, the film's producers felt like McCartney gave away too much of the plot in the lyrics, which is a hilarious concept to me. Like, not only are the lyrics, you know, anything close to being like, oh, and by the way, Bruce Willis was dead the entire time. Or, <laughs> or you know, uh, Neo is already in the Matrix, something like that. I don't, I don't know. Um and had I not known that this was for a film score, I wouldn't have known it was describing the plot of anything significant anyway. The lyrics are perfectly generalised enough that I, myself, and 
likely many others, would have just assumed it's a nice song to go along with the movie. Maybe in like retrospect, once you've seen it, but ahead of time, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, like, if there was a song called like, Oh, and by the way, everybody on the Orient Express is part of the murder and Poirot lets them go, you know, then I get it. But that's not what this song is at all. So that's two songs in like less than a year where McCartney's put a lot of effort into it, probably sunk quite a bit of money into it. Hopefully he's been reimbursed. Um, but yeah, it's been rejected. I can't believe how bruised Paul's ego must have been in this period. But unlike Did We Meet Somewhere Before, where you'd really have to think about where you're going to put it, same time next year would have had a possible out in terms of being able to be released. And I didn't come up with this. I read this in a few places uh, prior. But yeah, this would have been a perfectly suitable Christmas song. You know, you could have released this as the next year's follow-up to Wonderful Christmas Time, or even had it as a double A-side along with it, and people would have just accepted it as a romantic, maybe we bang once a year at the Christmas party kind of song. Heck, if that had been the case, I imagine a certain, possibly large segment of the fandom would have called this song the underrated track when compared to Wonderful Christmas Time. Anyway, let's dive into whether these lyrics really do reveal anything. You know, we're going to talk about the song now. And in addition to being a rejected film score track, lyrically, this song does share some similarities with Did We Meet Somewhere Before, in the sense that they are both songs that deal with love and its interaction and interpolation with time. Though, whereas Did We Meet Somewhere Before is about the past, this song is about the future and how the love he's singing about, aka his and Linda's love, is going to last long into said future. It isn't so blindly, whimsically, silly and youthful to say that their love will last forever and ever, which is in itself a very overdone trope, but instead it's rather maturely just looking a year ahead. It's almost like a real relationship where you take things as they come, a day, a week, a month, a year at a time. I guess the simplest way to sum up same time next year is that it's literally just a fancy way to sing about any kind of anniversary. Onto the instrumentation now, and of course, much has to be said about the orchestra, as it really is the standout element here. I mean, how could it not be, being that it is the size of a small army? Starting off the song, we have the tinny resonant notes of the kimbalom, and again, very arresting, rather at the start of same time next year. And at first, I thought it was some sort of harp or even a synth-based instrument, and I thought we'd have another mystery instrument on our hands here. But no, we have this very strange, very curious, very different kimbalom sound to start us off. And I don't know about you, but it also made me curious enough to see where the song goes. I'm like, okay, what is this? What is this flair? It's, it's very interesting. Again, McCartney's clearly trying to do something a little more interesting for a film score rather than just doing his typical sound. And rather uniquely, it actually serves to deliver the solo, which I thought was a very bold choice, actually, to not use Lawrence or Denny in any capacity there. And, you know, you never really get that in a McCartney tune where the orchestra's the one doing the solo. So it is unique in that sense. 
I mean, the whole song's very unique, though that's probably the best compliment I can give it. I'm not too sold on this Kimberlom thing. I feel like it's Paul trying to demo a new instrument and see where it goes, and maybe because he'd sunk so much money into it already, he couldn't, like, go back and do something else. Like, maybe this would have worked better with more of a guitar-type thing. I don't know for sure, but... Again, I do like how weird it is and atypical it is. Like, it's even, like, hinting that Paul's trying to go into a slightly stranger sound. Though, I would say that, unlike the stuff we kind of get on McCartney 2, this unique instrumentation is a pretty surface-level digression from the norm, as the rest of the orchestra is a much more formal and typical affair. Again, McCartney's trying to go true Hollywood and Trench allows him to deliver that in spades with his further orchestrations. Maybe that's why this song doesn't quite hit the mark for me. Like, yeah, the whole orchestral thing is serviceable, maybe even quite inspiring at some points, but it's not particularly inspired, and there's a certain something missing from it that makes it feel not totally McCartney. As trite as this comment would be, I'd rather have just gotten George Martin to do this for him, or at least just have McCartney do it himself with some cute little anecdote about how he has to communicate it all to the orchestra. I mean, the melody itself isn't that particularly bright or interesting, and it kind of just goes up and down and up and down, and it probably could have had a little bit more flair to make it more engaging, I guess. Outside of the orchestra, you do have McCartney's piano, which from the start, telegraphs that it is pure vintage McCartney piano, which is fun to hear. Like, you can picture him writing the song at the old piano, and it's easy to see how the rest of the song fell into place. Sadly, though, unlike Same Time Next Year, the song which I'm constantly comparing this to, the rest of the band, bar Steve Holly's drum work, are all but unheard, or at worst, unused on this track, which makes it feel much more like a solo McCartney affair, and it results in there being very little in the way of you know, giving everyone something to do, which gives it far less opportunity for spontaneous, quirky little Wings production and arrangement choices that I find so utterly charming. You know, it does feel like a bit of a missed opportunity. Still, you get a pretty good set of McCartney vocal pipe work here, where he gives one of his best doe-eyed, schmaltzy performances ever, uh, with just enough time at the end to deliver one proper McCartney scream for the fans. Yeah, to be honest, folks, I thought I would have more to say about this one. I mean, it is still two full A4 pages at font size 11, but... You know, the more I'm sat here talking about it and going over these notes, I'm realising that I'm just not as crazy about it as I thought. Maybe I won't see it this time next year. Might have to reschedule. Right, folks, for our next instalment, we're going to reference a topic that we very recently covered on a main episode here on the podcast. Now it's time to talk about the three versions the three early versions of Paul's theme song for his radio show, Ubu Jubu, all of which are also called Ubu Jubu. Ubu Jubu, Ubu Jubu. Uh-huh. Ubu Jubu, Ubu Jubu. Hey, yeah. Ubu Jubu. Uh-huh. 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 
Yes, folks, we are back to some Flaming Pie-era material. Gosh, it's been long enough. Only, you know, the original version of that idea. Now, for those of you who remember the Ubu-Jubu theme that I played on our Flaming Pie episode, you will recognise that what I just played wasn't it. No, that was Ubu-Jubu demo number three. Why did I start off with three? Well, because one is really short, and number two is just a shorter version of this. And I wanted to have more music in the background while I was talking here. But yeah, as I mentioned in Flaming Pie Part 1, Paul had the idea for Ubujubu way back in the late 70s and was planning on doing it relatively soon. So soon that he was already working on his jingle for it. If the classic drum machine wasn't enough of a dead giveaway, all three versions were recorded at, you guessed it, his home-based Rude Studios in 78, and the only thing that connects every theme tune variant for Ubujubu are the titular words Ubujubu, with said words coming from the play by Alfred Jarry, Ubu Koku, or Ubu Koku Cooked, or Ubu Cooked, whatever. And yeah, Paul is no stranger to jingles or themes, as we know from the Proud Mum theme or the Zoo Gang theme, and so it was never going to be difficult for him to get ideas onto tape with two rhyming words like that. Though, perhaps the fact that it was his own show meant that he didn't have a script to work towards and the only limitation was his own imagination. Meaning that he could do anything. Though, the fact that he can do anything could also be a bit of a constraint in the way that, you know, someone driving around an empty car park can still struggle to find a space. It was clear, though, that he was having fun with the idea, and like many of his home recordings, he decided to include some of the kids. Let's take a quick listen to version number one. So, that is very cute, of course, but it does make me wonder whether this recording is older than the bootlegs imply. Like, James would have only been around a year old if this was the mid-78, and Mary and Stella would have been around nine or seven, respectively. So, either the girls just sound incredibly young and silly on purpose here, or James is very developed by age one. Though, my theory is, is that actually it's, like, you know, Mary and Stella at around six and five, or seven and five instead, and perhaps the timeline needs to be redone, and maybe the idea of Ubujuba was in Paul's mind earlier than we thought. Now, I would play version two, but it's literally just a shorter rendition of what you just heard earlier, and it's actually quite stunning how little variation there is between the two. It's a bit like the difference between Backwards Traveller demo and the album version. It's the same, but longer. And seeing as how I don't really feel like bringing up Ubujubu again in a future episode of the series, we're going to wind the clocks forward to sometime between 1882 to when the idea was possibly being floated around again, now that Paul was a solo entity, which results in a fourth demo of the Ubujubu theme. Though, for this one, Paul completely changed the idea and instead went back to his vaudeville Tin Pan Alley mode of songwriting to create a very funny riff on the theme. Let's give that a listen now. All right, girls, steady yourselves. Oopoo-joo-boo. Flat, 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 flat
we are folks a whole bunch of ubu jubus with paul essentially just trying a bunch of things and seeing what works and what doesn't they're all terribly charming in their own way of course none of them really compare to any of these other cold cuts that we're talking about here today and don't even hold a candle to the final uh, production of the ubu jubu theme but i just wanted to bring them up because it's an interesting little curio from around this time it's nice to see where the idea started and how it kind of did change a lot, but also didn't change all that much when we get to the end version. Plus, we'd spoken about Ubujibu again quite recently here on the show, so I just wanted to touch on it. Fun stuff, very lightweight, not a whole lot to say. On to the next song. And now we have the first of today's entries that I didn't even know existed before doing the research for this episode even though the title does sound suspiciously like the two ballads that we've already covered. This is Seems Like Old Times. The other day I met someone I had known in another lifetime Old puzzle pieces lost without a trace Fell into place in my mind But we both knew we were getting into and we didn't want to stop no we wouldn't want to miss it cause it seems like old times so like long ago that i hardly even know who's who anymore what's new anymore so like long Seems like old times. Okay, we're starting to get our feet into the real murky waters of lesser well known cold cuts now. Sounding very reminiscent of something from the 1974 piano tape, this track is a quintessential old time McCartney piano ballad, and sadly, for some reason, it never quite got past the first round of auditions. Perhaps the fact that Two other big piano ballads from this year, aka the two film score tracks being rejected, meant that he was put off from developing this song further, which again is a real tragedy because there is a real charm and strength of melody and depth to be found in this one. Like, you know when Ringo talks about being able to listen to Paul play piano all day long? This is the kind of song that makes me feel exactly the same. The melody to this one is 
a real classic, maybe only millimetres away from being a proper classic, but it's 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 up there in the McCartney songbook. Like, all the piano bangs are all in the right place, and there are a couple of bits in this melody that I really found to be quite arresting and impactful and powerful and enjoyable, and it had me hooked. But maybe there's just something in this composition that makes it feel like it isn't quite there yet, but that's only because it's a demo and there is so much potential here. Like, I really could see this being brushed off and, you know, you could you could just add an additional hypothetical guitar part or horn string section and it would, it would take it from a near classic to a, a full-blown one. It seems ripe for some producer to come back and give it to Paul in a future album session to give it another attempt. To illustrate just how strong this melody is on its own, Paul re-recorded the song again with the only significant difference being that he whistles the majority of the vocals. Let's just hear a quick snippet of that now. Alternate versions of this song don't end here. You know, Paul is clearly enamoured with this song enough to give it multiple goes and multiple attempts. Maybe he's showing it to a bunch of people, seeing what they think, and he's taking feedback. And, you know, I, I did just say that this song could use a beefier arrangement with more instruments to take it to the quote-unquote next level. And I might be wrong there, as... Sometime after the whistle take, it seems like Paul either got the band together to run through this one or did a bunch of solo tracks himself and stitched it together, resulting in a third, seemingly much more fleshed out version of the song. And we're going to listen to that one too, right now. Fell into place in my mind But we both knew What we were getting into And we didn't want to stop No, we wouldn't want to miss it Cause it seems like old times So like long ago That I hardly Folks, I know this might not come as a surprise to some of you out there, but after listening to that version, I can confirm that now I actually prefer the stripped-down demo of this song. Sometimes we don't know what we want, 
And this is a prime example of that, as so much of the solemnity and soul and serious earnestness of that original demo was sadly lost on this version. Like, it sadly leaned into some of the more surface-level positivity instead of the more introspective and compelling elements of the song. And now I hope that if Paul does return to this one, it will just be him on piano again. Lyrically, though, this one is easily as strong as either of the two other ballads we've covered today, if not stronger. It's certainly in the wheelhouse of what McCartney was working on in this period, and the fact that this is a ballad about time and our perceptions of time, again, certainly does encourage a comparison between the other two ballads that we have discussed. What I like about this song, though, is how, despite the melody being quite uplifting and positive, within the lyrics there is an undercurrent of melancholy and sadness, which makes it far more interesting as far as I'm concerned. It's funny to me that Paul, a man who's only around 40 at this time, would be singing about knowing someone from another lifetime and the old times. And at first, it seemed to me like another example of him being able to step outside of his shoes and inhabit another character who he had met after an extended absence. Of course, this is before the Japan bust, so Paul had never been away from his love, and so for him to convey such a raw, emotive experience was nothing short of brilliant. As with the other two ballads, he is so adept at conveying an unsung, unspecified history between two people in a song without having to go into too much detail. Like, fuck me, the world-building he does here rivals that of Tolkien and George R.R. R. Martin combined, at least at times. Now, Whilst writing these notes, I found that there is another way that people have been interpreting the lyrics to this song, and of course, it is through the guise of John Lennon. Honestly, folks, it does feel like another lifetime since we've had this kind of interpretation from a Paul McCartney song, but it's easy to see what they mean when you start to break down the opening verse. The other day, I met someone I'd known in another lifetime. Old puzzle pieces lost without a trace fell into place in my mind, but we both knew what we were getting into. Okay, folks, i got to admit, this song certainly does feel like Paul is detailing the period between 74 and 80, where he and John would talk on the phone and occasionally meet up for dinner. You know, John literally is that person from another lifetime, and the memories he thought were lost are now suddenly rushing back to Paul. It's powerful stuff. And I love the idea that they both know what they're getting into. I mean, you've got the kind of semi-quasi-romantic element there. But it's also the idea that they know the flaws of the other person and they're still open for it to all go wrong with old wounds be being reopened and old habits being indulged. However, even if these lyrics are just general ballad lyrics, it still doesn't take away from the power and the drama in them. Then, when you get to the next verse, that admittedly I did not pick up upon until I read through the lyrics properly, the idea that this is about John becomes even more supposedly apparent. Familiar music man singing me a song from another lifetime, when urgent letters waiting for the post were uppermost in my mind, but he got through then before we knew it. Familiar music man? Come on, that's quite the smoking gun, right? Also, I just want to point out how much I like the rhyming of post and uppermost in the same line. Like, Paul did it with trace and place in the first one. 
and that kind of uh, rhyming in the middle of a line is always fun. It's very poor, actually. It's a very West Side Story in many ways. But um, before we start wrapping things up, I also want to touch on another line that I found to be quite evocative. So like long ago that I hardly even know who's who anymore, what's true anymore. That's so evocative, regardless. And I think that line says so much about the passage of time and how it does in many ways heal all wounds, perhaps. Like the idea that the Beatles breakup and all that horrible breakup nonsense was so long ago that it's hard to even tell if the person he's talking to now is that person or ever was that person doing all those horrible things. It's potentially a really insightful look into the relationship between Paul and John at this time. And if it's true, it's one of the most raw and honest moments of Macca's songwriting ever. Still, we cannot be sure that this is a 100% on-the-money interpretation, but after multiple re-listens, it's hard not to detect that there's definitely more going on with this song than meets the eye slash ear. Like, you know, this could be a bit about him bumping into anyone, but my gosh, does the evidence ever stack up in John's favour here? Though, if this is a song about John then maybe it explains why he hasn't gone back to it, as I guess he would prefer here today to be his statement about John from around this time. However, if this is a John song, then it's way less on the nose than all of the other post-Beatles nostalgia bait type songs, and instead Paul is making something very personal to him, something incredibly personal to him, and turning it into something palatable for us, his audience, and I think that's really cool. Of course, he does it through his own obscure, double bluff, uh, double entendre meaning sort of way, which is very Paul. So, yeah, I, I can't believe this one's been so buried for so long. Yeah, folks, that was Seems Like Old Times, yet another song that I had way more to talk about than I would have assumed going in, and... Yeah, wowee, this is ever one of the most outstanding cold cuts we've ever had on this podcast. Toppermost of the poppermost. Next up, and for once, we have a song that actually doesn't sound like anything that Paul McCartney would ever have written. This is a song called Praying Mantis Heart. folks, all of the telltale signs are there that this is just another clear Rude Studios home recording. We have the same audible crackle, the same drum machine, the same fuzzy vocal recording, and the same rustic, poorly recorded charm of all the previously featured home recordings of that era. I mean, it couldn't be more of a late 70s McCartney home recording if it tried, and I love it for it. As always, with these cold cuts, there is little to nothing written about them, and so all we have is my own speculation, and according to moi, this is one of those songs that's clearly built around a single specific riff. You know, you can clearly picture Macca messing around with his guitar and noodling away one afternoon. He hears a particular order of notes that he finds pleasing to the ear, and then bam, this song springs to life. Yes, 
there are lyrics to this song, but they feel like mostly placeholders while he works out this riff that he can't get out of his head. Is it the most complicated riff ever? No, not at all, but it has a definite catchiness to it, and perhaps if it had been used as one of two half songs stitched together, you know, that kind of type of tune, then maybe Paul could have done something more with it. I mean, the fact that Paul is even writing electric riffs alone is worth pointing out, and whilst Paul always professes that he always likes to play heavy, examples like Praying Mantis are sadly too few and far between. To reiterate my point though, this is a fun riff for what it's work, it is enjoyable, and it has that same kind of rudimentary charm and wit that the riff for Cage had, for example. So yeah, as I said, I don't feel like the lyrics would be anything close to the ones that would have been sung on the final production if it got one, though the central idea likely would have survived and just been reworked slightly. Again, to mention Cage, we saw the same thing there, with the lyrics becoming more fine-tuned along with the composition, and it probably would have been true here. Now, like another cold cut, like Ball Crisis, Sadly, it's pretty hard to make out the specific lyrics in this song, but the fact that we can quite clearly hear the word Mrs being sung quite often, and the fact that it has Praying Mantis in the lyrics, the only conclusion one can reasonably draw is that this song is about a man-eater of sorts. I hear the words she and street quite often as well, but it's very hard to pick up on. Maybe this would have been McCartney's own version of that Hall & Oates track, who knows? Yeah, that's basically all there is to talk about with this track. It's just a drawn-out riff played a few times over a basic drum track with some inaudible lyrics. It's cute, but incredibly lightweight. Right, let's move on. On to the next love song that I only just discovered a week prior to recording this episode, and we have All In Love Is Fair. Okay, now this is really the obscure shit, folks. Incorrectly labelled on Momax Hidden Tracks Volume 12 as All Love Is There, All In Love Is Fair is a song worked on between 79 and 81. The only version available is heard here, and it's taken from a rehearsal recorded uh, in the June of 79 at rehearsals with Wings at Limpin Castle. The song was later rehearsed during the Wings October 1980 sessions at Puggins Hall, in anticipation of a new album, what would have been Wings' Tug of War, 
and was even worked on in December of 80 and March of 81 at Air Studios in London. Now, there's quite a lot of backstory for a song I've never even heard of before. And like a couple of other ones in recent Cold Cut memory, the fact that Paul worked on it so much means he must have seen some sort of potential in it, even if that potential isn't exactly translated from that audio recording that you just heard there. Like, if this was pitched to George Martin in 1980, you know for a fact that this is one of the songs that he would have told Paul to ditch and write something better in its place instead. From what you can hear, the melody is not one that immediately leaps out at you, the arrangement feels very been there, done that, and it sounds amongst the dullest of the belaboured latter-era Wings rehearsals. Normally I like to play the song underneath my speech whilst I continue, but that 90-second snippet is all that exists to the public, and whilst I am curious as to what the full song would have sounded like, and heck, what a fully produced Tug of War version may have sounded like, but, you know, what I have to work with really isn't that engaging. I mean, it's interesting that... There is such a present Denny Lane vocal on this track, and I always like to be reminded that Paul is always working on more than we can ever imagine. But out of everything that we've looked at here today, here today, this is the one to me that purely exists as a curiosity, you know, just to be talked about as a trivia piece. Again, not too much to say about this one either, folks. It's just one of many McCartney ditties to fall through the cracks, and if there was anything worth salvaging, it probably would have at least been recorded properly like Ball Crisis or even potentially made its way onto a B-side around the Pipes of Peace era. Moving on, and we have a song whose name you always see on lists of unreleased McCartney material. I'm glad we can finally cover this, Ranachan Rock. Now, I don't think it takes a genius to point out that this song, in essence, is a jam that was recorded at, and named after, the spirit of Ranachan Recording Studio in Campbelltown, Scotland. And you know what? Despite the fact that I've been a little less than kind towards McCartney's skills as a jammer in recent episodes, I think I'm going to have to revise these opinions somewhat, at least when talking about Wings. It seems the introduction of youths Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly may have done something for the band's ability to just rock out and jam this way. Like, if this is the material they were producing when they were simply fucking around, then it's hard not to see why they generally thought that they were going to do some straight-up rock-punk new wave stuff on the Back to the Egg album as the main idea, because this is some of the most straightforward, to the point, proper rock and roll that we've had on this episode so far. I mean, yeah, you cannot deny that this is pretty fun. Yeah, it, it is. Though, it, it could also be seen as one of the more slight things we're going to be looking at on this episode. 
but it isn't bad or anything. You know, it's a jam, of course, so it's going to be unstructured and meandering, but I enjoy this a hell of a lot more than a fine day from Paul is Live, rather than some middle-aged, middle-of-the-road shuffle jam. This is a bona fide, energetic, enlivening, and ballsy rock session. It's a pity that more of this chutzpah never found its way onto the final album, as it shows the lineup of Wings being a proper rock act. A bit like how Wings Live in 72 did the same thing. For some reason though, whenever the band goes into this direction, McCartney kind of panics and falls back on his own conventions, and it is ever so irksome by this point. Also, just before we talk about the song itself, rather oddly, this track is listed on Momax Hidden Tracks Volume 13 bootleg as Ranachan Rock slash Angry. And so the only interpretation I can glean from this is that somewhere in here is, or what someone interprets as, the riff for Angry from Press to Play. Though I am hard pressed to hear anything like that myself, do email in at paulbacondipilot.gmail.com if you know the exact part they're talking about. Anyway, on to the track itself. And seeing as this is an instrumental, we can skip any discussion of vocal performance and jump right into the instrumentation. First of all, in terms of the generalities, the band sound tight as fuck here. I mean, they really haven't been together all that long, and we know that they would have a little bit of trouble in hitting the ground running with the 79 tour, as well as the rehearsals for the Japanese leg. But here, they are totally in sync and playing off each other wonderfully. There's a real harmony here. Oddly though, I wonder how much jamming McCartney's really doing here, as you can barely hear the bass in this one. And for all I know, he could just be playing lazy bass root notes. I doubt it, but there isn't much to report on in terms of the bass here. The guitars though, just sound straight up badass. They have a great growl and grumble to them, and the tones really take me back to something like Mumbo, another greatly underrated guitar track, where they've just got this real heft in the low notes, punctuated by these really bright, sharp, high ones. It's, it's really fun. And based on this and Good Night Tonight, it seems that maybe if Wings had gone into the future, that the relationship between lead and rhythm guitar could have been more blurred than, say, in the eras of Henry McCullough or Jimmy McCullough. Again, here we get a far more symbiotic, dueling kind of guitar playing, where they are training on lead parts and working together to elevate what the other's doing. We even hear Linda on the synths here quite prominently. And while she isn't doing anything particularly complex, she is adding those piercing little keyboard tones again, either drawn out notes or those little bips that do add a deceptive amount of structure to the overall jam. Like, the fact that she can even keep up in this kind of jam situation is proof that she is at least more or less proficient in being the keyboardist in this band, you know, at this point in her career. And yeah, of course, Steve Holly is just letting loose on that drum kit, delivering a good old-fashioned hard rock drum beat, adding some ferocious fills and flourishes, whilst also helping that grinding chug-lug of a jam just keep rolling on smoothly. You know, he's the only member of the rhythm section here that is appearing on the recording all that prominently. So, so a lot of that energy is purely down to him. So yeah, folks. Again, I think I had more to say on this one than I ever planned to, being that it is just a short snippet jam. But again, my gosh, is it ever a fun short snippet jam? Will I be listening to it much outside of this review? Probably not. But I still had a good old time whilst I was. Following on, and we have the only song today that isn't written by Paul McCartney, or isn't credited to him anyway. 
This is a song called Maisie. We're going to change things up slightly by having a song written by and composed by one of Wing's most underrated members, aka one Mr. Lawrence Juba. Sadly, Lawrence never got a credit during his tenure with Wings, and when we have stuff as strong as this, especially when compared to some of the cold cuts that Denny Lane had on the cutting room floor, I think we may have actually seen him be credited on the hypothetical 1980-81 version of Wings' Tug of War. Juba was and is such a great talentful melodic instrumental part and you need look no further than the song you just heard but if you need any more proof go and check out his solo stuff fortunately for me though this is one of the few songs from this cold cuts list that you are able to listen to legitimately on streaming services as lawrence actually went ahead and recorded it for a later solo album of his much in the vein of other mccartney collaborators such as elvis costello or dave stewart this song also has a little bit of personal history with me, which I have to point out, regrettably, uh, it's not an entirely positive one. Uh, I think I mentioned this on a recent Patreon vlog, but when I was interviewing the great Lawrence Juber for one of the earliest episodes of the show, I was meant to bring up this song to Lawrence and talk to him about it, but instead of asking him about Maisie, I instead asked him about Cage and said how much I liked his song Cage. Yeah, super cringe. Anyway, for the longest time, I've always considered this to be one of the very best songs of the Back to the Egg era. And again, this is another song that, in my opinion, should totally have made the final album. I mean, if Baby's Request and Million Miles can worm their way into the track list of supposedly rock and roll new wave based material, then a country western instrumental totally could have too. To be fair, with all the stuff that we're dealing with today, we're coming to the point whereby I could conceive of a potential Back to the Egg double album. I mean, we have so much fucking content here, and it makes total artistic sense that it could be done. Does it make financial sense? No, of course not. But it would have been a badass release for the fans, and would likely have been reappraised as a favourite in the years to come. As you just heard, the song has Lawrence on lead guitar, which immediately would have set it apart from the rest of the album, as his authorial voice shines through incredibly strongly. It's clearly not a Macca or a Lane riff, and that alone gives it a certain freshness. But the melody itself is just one of the most delightfully catchy things from the entire sessions. Unlike a lot of McCartney instrumentals, this is a track that would not work with the vocal line. And that is because Lawrence Juba's playing is lyrical enough, offering up a technically impressive yet wholly emotive guitar part that is entirely satisfying 
from start to finish. It just puts a, a goofy little smile on my face, and it does conjure up all these kind of country-western-style images. What I also enjoy so much about this song, and one of its greatest strengths, is how long it's able to sustain its riff for as long as, as it does. You know, it's almost like rumble or something like that. Like a proper McCartney instrumental, Juba's melody here is constantly changing and ever so slightly warping, meaning it never gets stale or boring. And he also gives all the other band members something to do to add a layer of freshness and interest around his part. The main other instrumental part of Note here has to be the ever-present harmonica, now, being that Denny has always played the harmonica for Wings, especially live, I have to assume it's him. And what a part it is for him to play. That wheezy drawl that he adds to, to the song is full of hyperactive flair and energy. And it makes it feel like a much more classic Wings track than you would first expect. Like, I think like we haven't really had harmonica since, like, maybe Time to Hide or something like that. Of course... With any McCartney song where he's not playing the lead part, you do get some pretty inventive bass, adding that trademark lyrical counter-melody that you can choose to pick out if you want to, but not so prominent that it detracts from the wider song, though there are a few breaks where you get to go boom, 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 like you know, classic Paul stuff. And also, being that Juba is one of the two new kids on the block, it's pretty cool that he gives the other guy, Steve Holly, some... Very unique percussive work in this song. Rather than a regular old drum beat, Holly does a far more old-school, almost Buddy Holly-esque sticks on the wood or the rims of the drum kit kind of work, which again really shows the range of skills and rudiments that he is more than proficient in. I just like that kind of unique percussive work. Here. You know, it like reminds me of Ringo just like slapping his knees or something. Now, folks, I actually do wish I had more to say about this one, but that's the thing with instrumentals, you know, there are no lyrics for me to think far too much about and create wacky theories about. And since there is little to no background info on this one, there's basically nothing else I can add. It's always been a favourite of mine. I like all the instrumental parts. They have a delightful charm and simplicity to them. It's very lyrical, it's very poetic, very expressive, and I doubt it will ever leave my top tier playlist. Okay, folks, I was about to move on to our second-to-last song at this point of the episode with my original notes, but then I discovered a track that was not on the collection of bootlegs that I had access to. This is Denny's Reggae. Yeah. 
on your nose now Dripping down to the floor Right, I wanted to make sure I had all my bases covered with this episode, especially considering how a little bit late it's going to be. And whilst I couldn't find the full Back to the Egg Sessions bootleg on YouTube, it seems to have been taken down, I was able to find it on an internet archive website. And at the bottom of the track listing, I saw an unfamiliar title called Denny's Reggae. Sadly, I couldn't download off this archive site, but I went back onto YouTube and there's another similar bootleg called Sunny Side Up with this at the end. And genuinely, folks, this is a real last minute addition to the proceedings as I didn't even know about it until about a day before the recording. And this is a borderline hot take on the material. I mean, I couldn't have had much of an opportunity to absorb the whole song more than a few times as the full version of Dene's Reggae found on that Complete Sessions bootleg is a whopping 12 and a half minutes long, making it the longest cold cut we would ever have had, at least if we would have been able to download it. Sadly, the version I could access on YouTube is only a snippet of the full thing, but yeah, Paul is rarely ever to do a jam this long, and whilst it is quite different to what we've heard before, after just one twelfth of the whole runtime, you can tell that this is instantly just another jam from this period. It's still very McCartney-esque, only that it's seemingly being led by one Mr. Denny Lane. Now, this is slightly odd for me, as I always thought that Paul and Linda were the reggae heads in the group, and that Denny was more of the blues and rock guy. But no, as we can hear right now, Denny too is clearly a fan of the genre. And it's fun to see that he would have conducted such an extensive, lengthy reggae jam session in the band's downtime. Like, could you imagine if Back to the Egg had some reggae material on it? Like, what the hell would that sound like? Honestly, folks, I don't have too much to say about this one. It's just something that I wanted to play, you know, to highlight the variety of styles and tones that the band was still playing with at this point. And considering that I couldn't play the whole 12 minutes, I didn't want to go into too much depth anyway. But yeah, there was a song called Denny's Reggae around this period. I don't know who would have titled it that. Maybe it was just someone at MPL marking things off for their own catalogue. Maybe it was something that was meant to be expanded upon. Who knows? But what a curiosity, eh? Now, onto our proper penultimate song. We are going to be revisiting that bloody club sandwich cold cuts and hot hits slash hot hits and cold cuts vinyl I have for one last time. Get your black and white striped shirts and cat masks ready, folks. This is Robber's Ball.
Now, right away, I want to point out that this is one of the prime cold cut tracks that I did not like at all when I first heard it. I did think that the song was a little bit too immediately grating, and dare I say it, too annoying for me to enjoy it. Which sounds very reminiscent of most people's feelings towards the theme tune to this show. You know, I felt like it was more of a comedy bit or a skit than a proper McCartney song that should have been taken seriously. And I imagine, like Temporary Secretary, the same could be said for many of you out there, especially for any of you who've just heard it for the first time now. But, as with the majority of McCartney tunes, after several re-listens and revisits, I finally got what it was going for, which is pure, silly, unadulterated, mindless fun. I've read that this song may never have even been intended for release in the first place, and was instead something that they were just having fun with and messing around with in the studio, but considering how presumably time-consumingly elaborate the whole thing is, as well as the fact that multiple takes exist, I find that idea pretty hard to believe. The whole song is no mere accident or home recording, it is a very deliberate attempt to make something in a very specific way, and I can only assume that they achieved what they set out to do, or at least I hope so. Now, with the next song, I'm going to describe coming up as a very transitional song from Wings to Solo, in the kind of same way I did with Goodnight Tonight, actually, but that is only in the sense that it's, you know, one song is a solo track being done by Wings and the other one is McCartney writing solo, but if we want to look at a truly transitional song in terms of the instrumentation and sound from solo McCartney to something like McCartney 2, then we have to look at this one, because this song has McCartney 2 all over it, and every single comment on YouTube points to how much this sounds like Paul imitating Sparks, which again is very McCartney 2. We have kooky electronica, tape loops, tinny electric guitar parts, drum machines, synths, keyboards, artificial orchestras, uh, almost like, again, Calliope uh, organ type sounds, and a funky bass line. This is as much of a cold cut that we could have looked at on the next episode as it is suitable for this one, and had Wings members not appeared on this track, it totally could have done so, but this is still Wings through and through, just the weirdest version of them that we ever got. I mean, the main riff of this song, even for Mad Professor McCartney, is just... It's just mad, isn't it? That kind of frenetic Morse code bouncy thrump to the whole thing sounds like nothing else Wings ever did. And, you know, I'd like to think that it hints at a possible future version of them being a bit more electronica-based, like maybe Tug of War might not have been their next album, but something more McCartney 2-esque, which is an incredibly exciting notion for me, as unlikely as it is. What I do need to point out, though, is that whilst this is incredibly strange and weird, it's still, in that very McCartney sort of way, is still completely catchy and memorable and enjoyable to listen to, at least after a few listens. You also have the vocals, and again, you can tell that everyone involved is having a blast with the whole thing, whether it's Paul and the band doing like that male choir parody with that kind of deep, resonant, probably ironic seriousness, to the whimsically posh voices that are just Again, parodies the silly falsettos where they're just pushing the boundaries of taste <laughs> to the to the maximum, or you know even those northern drawls 
you know that there are loads of laugh being had in the studio and you're not meant to take any of it seriously. And again, in the way that I want to point out that the riff is genuinely quite good, this song is actually quite funny. It, it does make me smile. It does make me giggle a little to myself, which is rare in a song. It is. Now, let's talk about the lyrics. I haven't been able to talk about lyrics for a couple of songs now. And the idea of the robber's ball is such an evocative and intriguing image. And it conjures up all sorts of images of renowned thieves from all over the world in Venetian masks and all the trimming. And just from this, you, 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 again, you, you are more than aware that this is a song you're just meant to have fun with. Let's just examine the first verse. You know, the theory that this is about a literal robber's ball does seem to make some sense. We noble men of Padua, O noble city that you are, how glad you are when we come into sight, for in the middle of the night we steal about without the light, and go where no one else would dare to fight. So, Padua is a town in Italy, which is literally a stone's throw away from Venice, and whilst this town was chosen likely for its rhyming capability, I still think that this is literally meant to be a high-class world-class, high-society, lavish gathering of rogues and thieves in a very kind of eyes-wide-shut sense. And and me mentioning Venetian masks seems to be all the more appropriate. And, you know, Paul is definitely doing some great storytelling here. You know, he's really building up these characters and making you wonder who may have set this whole thing up, why they have met, why there is a ball. You know, lots of fun questions. Though... As enjoyable as this imagery is, it's still a pretty surface-level interpretation of the concept, for in the second verse, McCartney decides to change it up. We noble men of Halifax will have you know for two brass tacks that we're much better than the likes of you, and naught can be us northern lads, the spitting image of our dads, especially when we've had a pint or two. Now, it was around this time that the first of the four secret policemen's balls were being held in the UK, the Secret Policeman's Ball is a charity concert for Amnesty International, and I am convinced that McCartney got the idea for this song based off trying to come up with a fun spin, you know, uh, come up with the opposite of a policeman's ball, and so he comes up with a robber's ball, which is absolutely hilarious. And now, rather than sticking to the heightened, elaborate, fancy ideals that, say, the Policeman's Ball or the first verse Robber's Ball gives, Paul instead decides to bring it on home to me, yeah, and instead focuses on real-life, downtrodden, working-class robbers. I love this shift, as not only does it add the rather obvious layer of humour to the song, but it also kind of gives you the room to kind of insinuate that maybe these working class northern lads do see themselves as those high society Venetians you know there's a bit of possible humorous dissonance there and Paul also just gets to indulge in the fact that he's a northerner for a brief moment for anyone whose knowledge of English geography out there is as bad as your knowledge of Italian geography Halifax is a town here in the UK located up north in Yorkshire and that is the exact accent that Paul and the band adopt for this verse. Like, Paul rarely ever embraces his northernness, and to hear him have such a laugh with doing the, with doing a northern accent like he's Sean Bean or something is certainly a highlight of the track. I mean, when he says that nothing can beat us northern lads, you know he means it. 
And the idea of being the spitting image of one's father, especially when you've had a pint or two, is more than resonant for me now that I'm staring both barrels down at 30. Also, the fact that the rest of the blokes in the band join in with Paul here, um, especially with reference to having a pint or two, definitely gives the song a very communal, arm-in-arm, swaying back-and-forth pub sing-along feel, which is totally winning for me. Robber's Ball is probably one of those songs that doesn't deserve the praise that I'm giving it. It probably is a bit more on the lower end of cold cuts, but it is just so ridiculously off the wall that I have no choice but to be completely won over by it. It's great, you know, just don't think about it too much. And finally, folks, to round out this episode, we have another transitional song from Paul in Wings to Paul McCartney solo. And depending on which side of the Atlantic Ocean you hail from, this is either really famous or rather infamous for you. This is the Wings live version of Coming Up. Well, I'll tell you what, most of the songs we've done this evening have like been released in one form or another. Uh, just for a change, you fancy hearing one that hasn't been released yet? Okay, yeah, well, I'm glad you said that. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> this one might come out next year if it, uh, if it escapes. And it's called Coming Up. Okay, folks, I know that for the majority of you, this will technically count as ending on a high note, but for me, this is certainly a low one. I've never been a fan of the live version of this song at all, and its popularity within the fandom has always come across as a concession to me, rather than something that is genuinely preferred. Like, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that I prefer the silly mad Professor Paul version of this song, rather than the bog-standard rock and roll Paul but there is literally no situation here where I would rather listen to this live version. So yeah, you know, whilst we have My Carnival, Did We Meet Somewhere Before, and Mama's Little Girl, as well as the 1985 remix being released in the future, Coming Up Live would be the very last single slash thing that would ever be released by Wings officially whilst there were still a band. Though its position as a fully Wings release is questionable, as this itself is a B-side to a Solo McCartney product. So yeah, whilst the album version was recorded in mid-79 as part of the McCartney 2 sessions, it was actually heard first by the world as a Wings band tune. Before its release in April of 1980, with the A-side being what would become the album version, Coming Up was first being performed by Wings in the November and December of 79, as a part of their UK tour, because as with a lot of the Wings canon during their Wildlife Red Rose Speedway era, again they are 
testing out a song in front of audiences to see how they would react. You know, whilst also, you know, offering them some exclusive material that they would not be able to experience elsewhere. They played it a total of 17 times on said tour and once during the concert for Campuchia. And, as you heard right there, several changes were made to transpose it from the vinyl to the stage as they would likely not be able to recreate the album version on stage. But, before we carry on, I should also point out that Coming Up Live wasn't the only B-side from that aforementioned single as it also shared the reverse side with Lunchbox Odd Socks. Technically, I should have spoken about Lunchbox Odd Socks on this episode, but I'm pretty sure I covered it on an earlier episode when we were talking about the Venus and Mars era stuff from which it was recorded. Anyway, back to the shows, and despite not resembling at all what the final version audiences would first hear, it clearly went down well enough for Paul to consider it good enough for some form of release. When speaking in Club Sandwich number 47 in the spring of 88, Paul said... On that tour, we did this one new number, which was coming up. There was this one boy who came down to the front while we were doing this number. It turned out to be the version that was number one in America, the live version recorded in Glasgow. Anyway, this kid was bopping away. Just seeing him, I thought, that's going to mean something. And I got one of those feelings that this was going to be a hit. Now, whilst Paul seeing people react live to a song and getting one of his funny feelings sometimes results in brilliant singles like Put It There... That's really not the case here, at least for me. And so, in order to get this version out to the public, Paul decided to put out the album version as the A-side and this as the B-side, using the performance from Glasgow. And I don't, I don't believe we've done a, a gig review of that one, so go back and check that out. Though, like Mull of Kintyre, overseas in the US of A, the single was largely flipped around by the Yankee Doodles, and it was... The B-side, that was the far more popular choice for radios to play, leading it to become the number one over there. Actually, the B-side was so popular that the record company, Columbia Records, wanted to put the live version on McCartney 2, along with the album version. But McCartney resisted the change and wanted to keep it like a proper solo album. And to anyone who can remember all of that to the start of this episode, this is very similar to the back and forth between him and the record company with Goodnight Tonight. And so, as a middle ground, I guess, Columbia Records included a one-sided white label 7-inch promotional copy of the Wings version with the album McCartney 2 in North America. Coming Up Live, or Coming Up Live in Glasgow, has since appeared on US versions of McCartney compilations All the Best and Wingspan, with the album version only appearing on the UK equivalents. Though, apparently, according to Lawrence Duber, Paul does indeed prefer the album version, and even had to be persuaded slash forced to include the live one on said US release of Wingspan. So yeah. As you likely know all too well now, if you didn't already, this live version is a complete contrast to the album one. The original is somewhere between Kraftwerk and Talking Heads, and essentially predicted the entire decade of the of the 80s, with its unique use of synthesizers, very speed vocals, drum machines, and all manner of electronic doodads. And whilst you know the album version is still my favourite, I do get why Paul did have to shake it up for the live crowd but he had to do it more so than any other song in his catalogue at that point. The technology was not there for him to do this faithfully, and so, rather than predicting the 80s, we get a kind of 
least greatest hits of the 70s with him looking back and doing basically what he'd been doing for the past 10 years but you know the worst version of it um you know this is what can only be described as paul's worst reimagining of his own material to date turning a song full of intricate charm layered experimental production subtle synthetically styled vocals classic linda backing vocals delightfully silly arrangements and keyboard work and replacing it with the worst elements of the wings live sound you know instead we have a very basic easy to follow arrangement of guitars drums and bass all backed up with you know a, a generally classic wings horn set yeah but it's all done in a way that implies the song was always meant to be this simple and i've never enjoyed that there's no grace or intricacy to this version of the song it's just very bog standard and surface level there's very little worth revisiting like yeah maybe if i'd have seen it live you know back then i'd i'd have more appreciation for it but just comparing the two it's like apples and oranges but one apple's fresh and the orange is rotting. <laughs> I mean, I know Linda may not have been able to carry the synths of this song alone, but couldn't Paul or Denny have done something at least a little reminiscent of the original? I mean, what we have here is a song that only sounds like the original in the most rudimentary form. And look, I like me some good old-fashioned chugging wings pub rock, but this is unimaginative, basic, run-of-the-mill and lacks any panache, come on. Okay, I know how much of a dick I'm gonna sound here and how snobby this already sounds, but Wings took a song, a weird, less obviously commercial, different, strange song for the deep cut fans and turned it into something for the general masses to mindlessly consume. Look, this is a classic example of a nerd who likes a specific thing and is upset that has been adopted by the wider public in a form that proves his niche is not as cool as he thinks it is. Still, this is my podcast, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. And what's worse is that this track, this version, is the one that Paul relatively still plays to this day, despite the fact that the technology has more than caught up and made it possible for him to do it the way it sounds on the album, aka the proper way. <sighs> Sorry that we've had to end on such a classic Paul or Nothing rant there, folks, but I really don't like this song at all. It's absolutely bollocks. I do apologise once more. So yeah, folks, there we are. We have finished the Wings run of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts slash Cold Cuts and Hot Hits now. From this point onwards, we are going to be doing all of the bonus solo McCartney product. So all of the solo singles, B-sides, unreleased material, bootlegs, etc. I also realised that I'm probably going to eventually have to start doing another side series where, where we look at like McCartney collaborations, where I do do stuff like, you know, The Girl Is Mine, or when Paul does instrumental parts or vocal parts on other albums. I know we mentioned on the Flaming Pie one that Paul appeared on My Dark Hour by the Steve Miller Band, for example. So yeah, we're definitely going to have to do some of that. But just looking at the list of the next songs we're going to be talking about on the next episode of this, whenever it comes out, I've got to say, I'm very excited to talk about them. There's some great tunes here. I know you're going to enjoy it. But importantly, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm sorry it's taken a little bit longer to come out than expected. I've had a lot of construction going on in my neighbor's houses next door, which has just meant that 
uh, production has come to a grinding standstill here at Paul, and I think I've still been doing a lot of writing for future episodes, so that's been all well and good, but you know me, I like to get the product out whenever I can, and I hope this episode has been worth the wait. I've had an awful lot of fun doing it. We've talked about some great tunes here today, and hopefully I've introduced you to something new. You know, there's always new Paul McCartney material to discover, at least for now anyway so yeah that's been another episode of paul or nothing folks i've been your host sam wiles keep listening to paul keep listening to unreleased paul no more autographs peace and love play us out denny
Thank you. 